Well, good morning, everyone. How you doing this morning? Okay? Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to uh, the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20. If you have a Bible with you, great. If not, you should find one that you can use down in one of the chair uh, racks around you. Uh, as many of you know, and just in case you don't, we're in the midst of a series called It Starts With Ten. It's a series in which we're looking at the Ten Commandments uh, that we have recorded here in this particular Old Testament text. If you missed last week, um, we started, when we started, I encourage you, I highly encourage you to go online and listen to that first message because everything else uh, really uh, follows after that. It really, uh, it really serves as the, it sets the stage for everything else, obviously, the first commandment. So if you missed it, go back and listen. Well, one of the th- uh, key things we noted last Sunday was how these commandments were given by God to an already rescued people given in order to help them see and understand uh, how healthy human life and relationships and sustainable community work, you know, how it's supposed to be, how it's meant to be. And uh, in his first commandment, God said to his people, he said, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And uh, as if anticipating a follow-up question like, you know, what do you mean by other gods? The Lord immediately answers with the second commandment and says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and, and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." Now, let me tell you something. We could spend a month unpacking everything that's in these three verses, but, uh, and I struggled with that this week, but I made a firm commitment to get us through 10 commandments in 10 weeks. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to forego any illustrative introduction and just jump right to it, okay? So God's second commandment is this, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an image. Now, the Hebrew term that's used here is the term pasal. It's a derivative of an original term meaning to cut or to carve. And it was used to describe idols that were fashioned by hand out of wood or stone or clay. And uh, the ancient Near Eastern cultures surrounding the Israelites were all about worshiping these images, these idols, these false gods. And keep in mind, the people of Israel uh, had just come out of Egypt where they had spent 400 years. And the Egyptians had this massive list of, of gods and goddesses they worshipped and sacrificed to. Uh, some scholars estimate upwards of 8,000 deities, uh, most of which were depicted by way of some image, some idol. For example, there was Hapis, the, the, the bull, the god of strength and fertility. There was uh, Osiris, the creepy guy, uh, he, the king of the underworld, you know. Uh, there was uh, Horus, the falcon-headed sky god. There was Hatmethet. Uh, the fish goddess, and there's a, there's a woman sitting with a fish on her head. And these are just four, just four of thousands of these idols. And so, in a way, God is saying to his people as they come out of Egypt, he's saying, look, I know you've been in Egypt a long time, you've been influenced by the culture, but let's be clear on this. I'm not one deity among many. I alone am the only true God. The creator of all things, bulls, falcons, fish, you name it, human beings. I'm your creator. Worship me only. So in short, God warns his people against idolatry, the worship of of images, the worship of idols, uh, which would then be a violation of the first commandment. Now, 
Given uh, the historical context of Exodus 20, obviously, it, it makes sense that when we hear the word image or idol, immediately we think of some carved or engraved totem made of wood, clay, or stone. But the issue of idolatry goes far beyond that. In Scripture, by definition, an idol is anything or anyone we love more than God. And idolatry is the setting of one's heart and affection on that something or someone. Okay, so an idol is anything or anyone we love more than God. Idolatry is the setting of one's heart and affection on that something or someone. Doctors uh, Moshe Halbertal and Avashi Margalit are Jewish philosophers at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and they co-authored a book entitled Idolatry. And in that book, they press the point that idolatry is not simply a form of ritual worship. In other words, it's not just an event, but it's a whole sensibility. It's a pattern of life based on finite values and making created things into godlike absolutes. In fact, they go on in the book to propose that the central uh, principle or the central theme of, of the Bible in entirety is the rejection of idolatry. Interesting idea. A well-known Christian theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, in his book, The Nature and Destiny of Man, defines idolatry. He defines it this way. He wrote that uh, idolatry is raising some finite and relative thing to being the final and ultimate value. Famous German theologian and reformer Martin Luther put it this way. He said, whatever your heart clings to, whatever your heart confides in, that really is your idol. That is your God. Now, at this point in the discussion, is, this is where we have to try and um, really try and avoid thinking of idolatry merely in terms of a bunch of primitive people bowing down to statues. Because the fact is, our contemporary culture is not that fundamentally different from the ancient ones that surrounded the Israelites. All cultures throughout history, including ours, have their own set of dominant idols. And with that being true, that begs the question, you know, well, what, what do idols look like? You know, what forms do idols come in? And the answer to that is very simple. Millions of forms. M- millions of forms, which is exactly why God said to the people, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above and the earth beneath or the waters below. I mean, that's an all-encompassing statement implying that anything in the world can be turned into an idol. Anything can become a false god that dominates our emotions, our affections, our time, our focus, our energy, and our resources. Most of us realize you can make an idol out of money. Most of us know you can make a god out of sex or possessions. But Exodus 20 tells us anything in life, anything can serve as an idol, a counterfeit deity, a, a, a god alternative, if you will. Uh, Christian pastor and author Tim Keller, in his book entitled Counterfeit Gods, writes this. He says, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life, should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling possession in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it, without a second thought. He says it can be, and get this, it can be family and children, a career in making money, Achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a uh, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. I.e., an idol can be anything in your life that displaces God. Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize winning author journalist, uh, war correspondent. He's written a book on the Ten Commandments. 
entitled Losing Moses on the Freeway. I just finished it. It's, a, it's an interesting book. And he says, he says, he's talking about our culture today. He says, he says, you know, we're burdened by household gods, no longer made of clay, but all promising to fulfill us. Our computer, television, job, wealth, social status, along with the brands we wear and the cars we drive, promise us contentment and inform our identity. The household gods seem to offer well-being, health, and success. But all these gods create cults. And all these cults circle back to us, to a dangerous self-worship, fed by forces who seek to ensnare us in idolatry. We can see the idols, of, uh, the idols others worship. It's hard to see our own. But here's the deal. We all have them. Or, or at least we all struggle with the tendency to move toward idols, toward idolatry. Why is that? Well, let's consider some of the dynamics of idolatry, which I think will help explain why we're drawn to it and how it operates in our lives. First, let's think about the motive of idolatry. What, what motivates us to worship something or someone other than God? And it's probably a little bit more complicated than that, but, but for me, if you boil it down, the primary motivator is, is control. We want control. And you can trace this all the way back to Genesis, the Garden of Eden, when man and woman first bought into the lie uh, that, you know, if you give God supremacy, you're going to miss out on something good, man. He's holding back on you. He's not, he's not telling you everything. He's not giving you everything. And, uh, and on some level, we still believe that. And we figure, well, you know, hey, if I, if I live for, uh, for anything else, at least I'll have more control than if I live for God because he's going to tell me what he wants to tell me. He's going to tell me what I should do, what I shouldn't do, what I can have, what I can't have. And I want to decide that for myself. I want to do my own thing. So if I worship idols of my own making, then at least I can maintain some degree of control. And then this desire for control is fueled by our arrogance. The Apostle Paul wrote Christians in the early church, specifically those living in Rome, and he, he, he talked to them about sort of the history of idolatry, and he writes this to them. He says, you know, although people knew God, they neither glorified Him nor gave thanks to Him. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. The way Paul is saying, this is, this is what people do, and, uh, and we all kind of do it. In other words, he's implying there's a reality to, to idolatry, and, and really that no matter what it is that motivates us, there is this uh, necessity for idolatry. What do I mean by that? I mean that as human beings, we are all created to worship. It's part of our wiring. It's part of our DNA. It's, it's, um, it's in our nature to do so. And so if we, we turn from worshiping you know, the God who created us, then uh, we will naturally replace him with something, uh, something else, some false uh, God, some false idol, some, some, some created thing. Um, reformer, a theologian, John Calvin once said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. And he's right. I mean, look at it this way. If you deny your physical nature food, at some point it will eat something. It will eat anything it has to to survive. If you don't give it the right thing, it will devour the wrong thing. And your spiritual nature is much the same. You must worship you are designed to give yourself to someone, to give yourself to something, to serve somebody, and that somebody is God. But if you refuse to give yourself to Him, you will give yourself to an idol of one sort or another. You will. We all will. 
And then comes the delusion of idolatry. Again, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing these Christians in Rome, alludes to this. He says, you know, although people knew of God, they refused to worship him and and to give him thanks. And instead, they exchanged the truth of God for this lie. And and he says, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Listen, what it comes down to is this. You know what an idol is? An idol is a good thing to which we establish an emotional and cognitive attachment, and then we deify it in our minds. It's it's often a good thing, a good person, a good passion, a good pursuit that we idealize, and then we idolize. We blow its value and its significance completely out of proportion. And as a result, that idolized thing begins to consume uh, our emotions and our, our, our attention and our, our time and our resources and our energy. It becomes this false God we believe will give us meaning and give us happiness and significance and, and fulfillment in life. In other words, there's a salvation aspect to idolatry. In our delusion, we believe that this idol, in whatever form it comes, will save us. In the book of Isaiah, God speaks out to the people of Israel through that prophet. And uh, he says, you know, this is how it kind of goes in life. God says, you know, a person cuts down a tree. He says, someone cuts down a cypress uh, that I created. And then in, and uses some of it to fuel uh, himself by fire and then bake bread with. And then God says, and then from the same tree, from the rest of that tree, he forms a God, his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, save me. You are my God. That's foolishness. As I read that text this week, I thought, you know, in a way, that's how you can identify an idol, yeah? Right? It's anything you bow down to, you bow before and say, I need you. I need this. I need it. Save me. It's going to give me significance and meaning and fulfillment. Save me. It's taking some creative thing and making it your rescuer, your ultimate hope in life. And sometimes the best way to tell if an idol is operating as such in your life is not by looking at how good you feel when you get it, but how devastated you are when you don't get it. Uh, English author H.G. Wells was a 20th century modernist who believed, really believed in the perfectibility and innate goodness of human beings. And uh, in 1919, he wrote this book entitled uh, The Outline of History, in which he says, uh, basically his thesis was, uh, the golden age is ahead of us. Uh, Through education and science and technology, we're going to fix what ails us as human human beings. We're going to fix the world. We're going to bring in this utopian experience and and, uh, and all this. That was 1919. By the mid-1930s, Uh, He got fed up with politics and politicians particularly and said that they were selfish and crooked and violent. And then he went on to to suggest, you know, we got to get rid of them and we have to let the scholars and the intellectuals take over and educate the masses on justice and compassion and equity. That was in the 30s. By 1945, the year before he died, he published his last book entitled Mind at the End of Its Tether in which he says, Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. Man is done. What happened to Wells? (laughs) What happened to the optimism? I'll tell you what happened. He made the goodness of humanity his supreme hope, his savior, his idol, his God. And when you do that, when you make anything other than the true God your supreme hope, 
your, your mind will come to the end of its tether. Here's my Ray K translation, okay? You're going to be left disappointed and devastated. Because that's the end result of idolatry. Always the end result, devastation. Because no idol in whatever form can meet our deepest human needs or expectations or hopes. It can't. Only God who created us can do that. In the New Testament, Mark tells a story of a, of a, time, a day when a guy comes to Jesus and says to Jesus, uh, Good teacher, what, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, um, you know the commandments. You've heard of those, right? Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, yada, yada, yada. And the guy says, yeah, I've kept all those. And Jesus said, really? Okay, then if you want eternal life, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Now, Jesus never, ever said that to anyone else, ever. So why did he say it to this guy? He said it to him because although the man said he kept the commandments, specifically five, six, seven, eight. He was already in violation of one and two. The text says that the man was, was rich. And it's not that wealth is inherently evil. It's not. Money can be good. It can be used for good. But for this guy, it wasn't so good. Money had become his idol. He was committed to it. He was obsessed with it. He was dominated by it. He hoped in it. He lived for it. And so Jesus says, you need to get rid of that idol. It cannot save you. Get rid of it and come and worship me. And what did the guy do? Mark says, at this the young man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had great wealth. It's a tragic, tragic thing. I mean, despite the spiritual need this guy sensed deep inside, he allowed an idol to displace God with, with, with devastating effects. He walked away from the only true hope of eternal life, from the only true Savior. I mean, is it no wonder God takes issue with idols? I mean, think about the betrayal of idolatry. Think how, how it must wound God when we who He's created and who He loves turn our affections to other things, created things. Verse 5 here in Exodus 20, God says, Don't do that. Don't bow down and worship idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, <clears throat> punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Jealousy. And when we think of jealousy, we tend to think of it in negative human terms, right? It's the idea of weakness, immaturity, uh, insecurity. But that's not the case when it's applied, this term is applied to God. In fact, the Hebrew term that's used here for jealousy simply means to turn red. That's what it means, to turn red or to become red. It was, it was, used, uh, it was a term used to describe the heightened color in someone's um, complexion or, you know, who is experiencing, experiencing intense emotions. Do you know what I mean? Like for me, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm getting revved up about something, whatever it is, you know, good or bad, whatever, uh, my head turns the color of a maraschino cherry. I mean, I, I, there's no hiding it. I'm all revved up. I'm bright red here. And, uh, and so what this is telling us is that not that God is bald and has a big red head. So, um, but it is telling us that God is emotive. In other words, he has feelings. And he knows what it means to love. And he knows how it feels to be rejected. Like everybody in this room knows what that feels like. And when he says, I'm a jealous God, he's saying to his people, look, I love you intensely. And I'm revved up about it. And I'm, I want an exclusive commitment to you, a committed relationship with you. Uh, you know, I want, I want to love you and I want you to love me and worship me only. Put me first. And I don't know how you guys feel about it for me. I mean, I think that's reasonable for the creator to request. 
But then there's this whole punishing children comment. I'm like, what is that about? I mean, is God saying, okay, for those of you who don't love me, I'm going to get even with your kids for a few years. How do you like that? Is that what he's saying? No. It's not a divine threat. But it is a description on how life works. God is saying, look, as your creator, I, if I am not worshipped and honored, then you will worship something or someone. And the idolatrous, sinful, and addictive behavior of parents, for example, is going to transfer to children and maybe to their children's children. In other words, people, your choices have consequences. And those consequences don't necessarily die when you do. They have long-term ramifications. Understand, God has created human beings and He has carefully designed our offspring in such a way that kids learn by growing uh, and grow by, they grow and learn by emulating other parents' attitudes and patterns of behavior, good, bad, or indifferent. And this parental influence is powerful. I mean, you guys know it's powerful. Most of us recognize and understand how the attitudes and actions of mom and dad are often adopted by their kids. And so this generational pattern emerges good, bad, or indifferent. That's not a threat. It's just the way it is. And so in a family where God is not worshipped, where he is displaced by other things, money, career, sports, drugs, leisure, you name it, the negative pattern of behavior of the parents gets passed on oftentimes. But here's the good news, okay? God is gracious. And any generational chain or any generational pattern of sin can be broken by anyone who's willing to abandon the idols and choose to worship God only. Notice in verses 5 and 6 here, we have two groups of people represented, right? Those who hate God and those who love God. Understand, in the Old Testament, the concept of hating isn't what we think. Hating simply meant to choose not to have a relationship with someone and choosing to have it with something or someone else. While the concept and actual term that's used here for love means to delight in and earnestly desire this relationship. So in other words, some people chose not to have an exclusive relationship with God and with that choice revealed through their idolatry and rebellion, while others chose to love God and earnestly desire a relationship with Him, a choice demonstrated through their worship and obedience. But for me, the most critical term here uh, in the text is the first term for love that God applies to himself when he says, I'll show love to a thousand generations because that term for love is different from the other term for love. It's, uh, it's the, the Hebrew term chesed, which refers specifically to a merciful, patient, loving kindness, grace. You see, with God, no matter what we do, it, it always comes back to grace when we come back to him even with idols. So what do we do about idols? Well, we've got to get rid of them, right? How do we do that? How do we deal with them? And to be honest, I mean, this warrants a, a more detailed conversation than we have time for, but let me offer just a few ideas. Dealing with and ultimately destroying idols first requires you identify yours. Uh, in their book, No God But God, Christian authors Oz Guinness and John Seal write this, idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible. Yet for Christians today, it's one of the least meaningful notions and is surrounded with ironies. Perhaps this is why many are ignorant of the idols in their lives. Contemporary Christians are little better at recognizing and resisting idols than modern secular people are. 
There can be no believing communities without an unswerving eye to the detection and destruction of idols. So here's the deal. I guess, I guess I'm not asking you if you have idols. I'm assuming we all do, myself included. The issue is, what are they? What in life uh, do you love more than God? What have you set your heart and affection on that's displacing him? Or who? Now, some idols are really obvious uh, to identify. Others, not so much. Others are going to be a little bit more challenging to identify. So why don't you try this? First, look at your imagination and ask yourself, what do I think about most when I'm alone? What is it? Who is it? Because the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing demanding your attention. What is it? Look at how and where you spend your money. You know, not much has changed since Jesus' day. That money is an important thing to people. That's why Jesus talked about it more than just about any other topic and why he was in the marketplace all the time. And he said to people, you know, where your treasure is there, your heart is also. Your money flows most effortlessly toward your heart's greatest love. What is that? Look at how and where you spend your time. You know, in our culture, time is a very precious commodity. What do you do with it? Now, work for many of us is a given. But what about the rest of the time? How much time of your life does God get? How much attention? What idols are draining time away from him? Look at your um, over-the-top, uncontrollable emotions. What are they about? Anger, for example. When you get like just, just rip-roaring angry about something, when you're furious, stop for a second and say, is there something here that's just too important to me? that I feel I have to have at all costs and I'm not getting and it's just freaking me out? Or when you're afraid, when you're anxious, ask, you know, am I scared because there's something in life in my life that's being threatened, that either I'm going to lose it or I'm not going to get it, and I think it's necessary uh, in my life to bring me happiness and fulfillment and significance and all that? Do I believe I have to have this certain thing to feel loved or to be, you know, feel full or, you know, have meaning? Because oftentimes behind those out-of-control emotions, fear and anger, there's an idol. And then, and then and here's the final thing, and this one's really hard. Uh, this takes some guts. Look at someone you trust and ask them, do you see idols in my life? And see what they say. Hopefully they'll tell you the truth. The truth. Now once we identify the idols, uh, we've got to get rid of them, Right? And the way we get rid of them is by rejecting them and replacing them. And part of doing that is by setting our minds and our hearts on things above us, things that are eternal, God himself. Everything else is going to fade away. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote to Christians in the church, and he, he said to them in the church, he said, look, you have been in Christ, you have been raised with Christ. So, so set your hearts on things above Eternal things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your mind on things above, not on earthly stuff. For you died and your life is now hidden with God, uh, Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Listen, we're all human and we're all made to worship something or someone. We will and we do. The question is, what is it? 
Who is it? Our Creator says, have no other gods before me. And don't make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. Perhaps the time has come for us in the Christian church to take this idolatry thing seriously because we're not immune to it. And in some ways, I guess we have taken it seriously because we can see the idols others worship. It's just really hard to see our own. And for that, we need wisdom. And for that, we need insight. And for that, we need courage to be brutally honest with ourselves and with God. Let's pray. Our Father, we often think of the ancient world as being so different from ours, but in reality, it's, it's really it was not that different. Because every culture, starting in the garden, the very foundation of humanity, we've had this tendency to rebel against you and to want control of our lives. And that desire for control is fed by our arrogance and results in us turning from you and choosing to worship other things. And um, those things take many forms. In our lives, they look like cars, homes, money, relationships, technology. Uh, those idols come in, in, in a myriad of of forms and fashions. And I pray that you would help us begin to understand that and in understanding, uh, deal with them. And most of all, the, when it comes right down to it, we, we make ourselves <laughs> our own idol because we want what we want and we serve ourselves. And everything is about us as if the world revolves around us. And so we have work to do, Lord, in our, in our lives, I think if we're all honest. Thank you for your grace that is available to us uh, when we come back to you. But I pray that you would help us to understand what it is we worship, who it is we worship, and I pray it would be you. Awaken our souls, awaken our minds to the reality, and give us the courage to deal with it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.